Maybe we can email her. We have a podcast. Can, we... <laughs> can you? <laughs> can you imagine? Hi, Robin Hobb. This is Emma from the podcast Is It's Happy, where we rip apart your book and like really question the decisions that you make as a writer. Um, could you answer a few questions? <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy. I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. And this week we are discussing chapter 12 of Madship, The Portrait of Vivacia. This is like the... It's not the climax, but it is the start. It's the beginning of it, yes. It's the start of all the stuff going down with Brashen and Althea, I think. Yeah, this is... Well, this is the start of the climax of the whole trilogy, Right. This is where sure, like the yeah. catalyst of like, oh, things are starting to come together now. Mm-hmm. We now see the trajectory yep, of this the, book. The main characters now know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we can start this off for real. <laughs> we start with Brashen, as Emma mentioned. And it's Brashen backing up his captain, Captain Finney of the Spring Eve. He is in his head about this. They are in the cabin of the Spring Eve right now. And... Sincure Falden is spreading out wares in front of them for the the captain to buy and then sell to other ports. Right, which Sincure Falden was the one who offered his daughters to Kennet. And Sorkor. And Sorkor. Yep. Um, Also, I want to point out that during this section, Ration is kind of recapping how he got here which is a little odd because this is not the first time in this book that we've heard from brashen and in fact last time we heard from brashen the captain of this ship was offering him a position in a secret under the table pirate gig on top of their already under the table pirate gig that they're doing right yeah he captain finney wanted him to broker deals in Bingtown since he had Bingtown connections mm-hmm. to sell stuff there, which is usually a no-go for pirates. Right. But it just strikes me as a little odd because he does talk about how he got to the to work for Captain the Captain and what the job is and what he thought the job would have been, which I don't know. Like I said, I think we've already been over that. And considering this is like the third or fourth time we've heard from Brashen, it kind of feels like a weird place to put a book recap of last book. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a little bit more roundabout than some of the other recap parts that we've had. It's different parts of what Brashen is thinking. But yeah, it, it kind of treads the same line a bit. Yeah. And I think it probably is because we actually haven't heard from Brashen in several chapters and a lot has happened. So it probably is to remind you what's going on, especially if you right. randomly decided up decided to pick up book two instead of book one. But <laughs> I don't know. It just I thought was an odd choice. So Sincure Falden is displaying his wares. He has his son displaying things as well, rolling out different goods around the captain's cabin here, and they are dressed as opulently as Sincur Fallen is. Yeah, all three of his sons, which yes. were not mentioned last time we met him with 
Kenneth, if I recall correctly. I don't think so, but we're from Kenneth's point of view, so he wouldn't have cared. Right. True. Or his sons wouldn't have needed to be there because it seems like his sons are part of the business of selling the wares, not yeah. acquiring the wares. Right. Right. And Brashing goes into a huge detail about how opulent Sincure Falden is and how he is a merchant through and through he likes the story of each of his wares trying to sell the prospective buyer on them and his sons are a part of that showmanship you know arranging their goods in an artful fashion right and wearing clothes that are made from the bolts of fabric that they're laying out to show so everything is part of a show and it's well done brashen is impressed but not visually because he doesn't want them to know that he is noticing that i guess because his role right now is to just look intimidating but affable at the same time which is a hard line to tread right so he is watching the youngest son i believe it's the youngest most closely because his job is to just pay attention for any funny business (laughs) and he is on edge more than usual because 10 days ago he had to kill a thief on deck so he is kind of on edge and worried about, well, he's suspicious about everybody and he doesn't want a repeat of that. Right. And when he talks about what happens with the thief, he mentions that he had to spill the thief's blood and he is reassuring himself that the man made him do it by trying to steal. Yeah, I guess it doesn't say he kills him. No. He just sheds his blood. Right. But I don't know, as guilty as he seems, it feels like maybe he killed him. Maybe not. Maybe I'm overlooking it. Maybe Brashen would feel guilty for hurting someone. But the whole thing reads very Wintro, like, it's not my fault. I didn't make the decision. They made the decision. (laughs) And then I felt bad for saying that because later we get Wintro's point of view where his dad is like, you always blame everybody else. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to be a Kyle. (laughs) But yeah, this whole scene. Yeah, Brashen says, The man had forced him to act. He could not have simply stood by and let him rob the ship, could he? Yet Brashen could not shake the uneasy notion that he should never have taken this berth. If he had not been here, he would not have had to shed blood. So he's kind of just in his head wrestling about like, I shouldn't have done this to begin with, and then that that kid would have been fine. Yeah, so... I don't know. I, I do feel bad for Brashen, though, because he he is trying to wrestle with the guilt of hurting somebody else for kind of no reason. I mean, I guess the guy was a thief, but yeah. Yeah. So. So this is where Brashen goes into a little bit of a recap again about what the Spring Eve is, what it traffics in and who Captain Finney is. Yeah, I do want to mention he specifically states here, where would he have been if not? on the ship he he had not known where this job was leading i thought that was a really interesting thought to hear from brashen because he knew this was a shady ship to begin with right a bit shady but he didn't know exactly and he he felt like he was too suspicious and remember he was Mm. sinden adult i mean he still is but (laughs) he was also drinking a lot there i guess i just thought whenever he first comes on to the scene, whenever he first gets on the boat, that he knew right away this is probably I think the probably in there is mm. the thing. He didn't know for sure. And I think he's looking back on that 
and being like, oh, I was so innocent then because I've had to do everything for Captain Finney. I, you know, spilled blood on the deck and we're not just kind of dealing with maybe some ill-gotten goods. We're basically just bartering all pirate goods. Fair enough. Yeah. So I think it, I think it was just kind of like... I thought maybe we would do it once in a while, but no, that's like exclusively what he does. Fair. Yeah, I guess it's a good point. So he does talk about that and he goes on to talk about how reality is grimmer than what he thought. And Captain Finney is still kind of an enigma to him. Yeah. As for Finney himself, Brashen still could not fathom the man. He wasn't sure if Finney had decided to trust him or was testing him. The man's disarming frankness was a guise used to gull the most disreputable merchants who traded with him. The stout man could never have survived all his years in this trade if he were actually as trusting and open as he appeared to be. He was a capable man on board his ship and adept at charming people. However, Brashen suspected that he was capable of near anything for self-survival. At some time, a knife had left a long mark across his belly. The ridged scar was at odds with the man's seemingly affable nature. Ever since Brashen had seen it, he had found himself watching his captain as closely as he did those whom came aboard to trade. And that that suspicion does serve him well, but Brashen still isn't like the tactful kind of speaker. Yeah. It seems to work out kind of well in this situation. It's just kind of... I think... I don't know. Brashen is pretty quick on his feet and pretty quick to understand the situation that he is in, but he has no idea on how to act on that knowledge. If that, I wouldn't say no idea, but he's not as competent as right. other characters in the books. Yeah, he's not the worst. No, but it's it's a well written degree of nuance in there that he's not the best either. Yeah. So uh, that's more what I meant, I guess. Yeah. Not that he's horrible or he can't do it, but it feels as though that's where he falls short. Yeah, often he... Robin Hobb writes like, oh, he said that too roughly or mm-hmm. too quickly, you know, just yeah. little touches here and there. Yeah. That he's not the best at dissembling. Which I, I kind of appreciate because I do think that's, it's nice that not all of the characters are perfectly adept at manipulation and uh, right. understanding the situation. Like, Malta or Kennet. <laughs> Not every character is like that. So it, it is good to get the in-betweens. Yeah. And I don't know. So it's I really like Brashen for that reason, that he isn't perfect. And he definitely has his Achilles heels in being not confident enough, I think. Right. So he is watching Captain Finney Hegel with uh Sincura Fallen and we get an example in real time of Captain Finney being discerning and a great haggler where he taps 12 different pieces of jewelry amongst the whole fabric that was stitched in the back full of different kinds of jewels and baubles and trinkets and he says yep I'll take these 12 set them aside everything else is trash and Sincura Fallen is like Rashin notices that he's a little uneasy around the eyes as he's like okay this is going to be harder than I thought. <laughs> yeah. So Captain Finney's whole deal is that he likes to play dumb. And then as soon as it's time to negotiate, he takes the merchants for all they're worth. Yeah. Brashen himself did not see the advantage to such a tactic. 
When he had worked for Efren Vestret, his captain had told him, always leave enough meat on the bones that the other man is also satisfied. Otherwise, you'll soon have no one willing to trade with you. Then again, Captain Vestret had not been trading with pirates, and those who disposed of stolen goods for pirates. The rules were bound to be different. Which I guess is true, because he's made deals with Sinkir Falden before. Yeah, but you would think then that Sinkir Falden would not have been surprised at the sudden Maybe cutthroat nature. Every single time he tries to pull the wool over his eyes, you know, just like, I'll bring out these other ones too. They look good. And maybe he's not used to, uh, to Finny buying jewelry. I don't know. I don't know. I, either way, it's, it is interesting. It is cool to see a character who is kind of cutthroat in a way that yeah. like he, we're not affected by any decisions that he makes truly as readers and he is just a side character. We don't get his point of view, but he definitely is an interesting character to know. I would love to have one chapter in his head. <laughs> Brashen talks about where they've been so far. He talks about the cursed shore, which they've been kind of leisurely making their way up from Candletown along. And he talks about the quote unquote coast of the Pirate Isles. And this is where the description of the geography comes in and what we've talked about before. It says, The whole section of coast, known as the Pirate Isles, was constantly in flux. Some claimed that the multitude of rivers and streams that dumped into the inside passage around the Pirate Isles were actually one great river, eternally shifting in its many-channeled bed. Ration didn't care much if the streaming waters that emptied out into the channel were one river or many. The facts were that although the warm water mellowed the climate of the Pirate Isles, it also stank, followed boat bottoms at a prodigious rate, weakened ropes and lines, and created billowing fogs in every season of the year. Other ships did not willingly linger there. The air was humid, and what fresh water they took on turned green almost overnight. If the spring eve anchored close to shore, insects swarmed to feast on the crew. Strange lights danced often on these waters, and sound traveled deceptively. Islands and channels shifted and disappeared as the wandering rivers dumped their silt and sand, only to have a storm, rain, flood, or tide gulp away in a single night all that had been deposited during a month. He talks about a little bit of his memories from the past, just hazy memories of everything. But this is changed. Yeah. And before we get into how things have changed and his now willingness to think about his time as a pirate... I wanted to point out that this description of the Cursed Isles as having just kind of oddness about it really struck me this read through as potentially another fallen elderling site. Yeah, possibly. The Cursed Shores are talked about quite often and it's been around forever. And it's something that acts unlike other elderling cities so i'm not i mean it's possible yeah i'm wondering if this is one of the ones that is under the water maybe because that would make sense why there's lights in the water and sound carries weird like maybe the memories sometimes pop up i guess usually you only see the memories if you're touching the stone in some way but i'm just thinking about how potentially 
if it's under the water, there could be weird things going on. Uh, the Elderling City, it also kind of would make sense to me why there would be the waters are so weird. It makes me think of the rain wilds where not necessarily to the extent of the rain wild rivers, but it does rot boats. Like the water in this area rots boats and it's because it's warm. Oh, but I mean, it rots it weirdly quick and ruins yeah, the true. ropes and just has a weird stench, which we know that the rain wild rivers also do. So I'm just wondering if maybe there's also not as big of a reserve, but some silver in those waters as well, which Maybe. would weaken the boats. Not enough, obviously, to hurt people and destroy boats completely, yeah. but it could be it could be like a tributary way further up in the same river. Yeah. It kind of comes down. I don't know. I mean, I guess there's also no mention of the curse that happens in Bingtown happening here. Right. But if there weren't any dry, if this wasn't a place where dragon eggs were kept, there wouldn't be any remnants of dragons to curse quote unquote the people. Right. So I don't know. It just was a thought that I had. Obviously there's no way to prove it kind of a tinfoil hat theory, but I thought it would be interesting to think of it as a potential site of yeah. an old elderling place. It's, it's a good in story explanation I honestly just kind of read it as your typical older fantasy slash tall tale slash folktale myth. Like this is a bog. This is mm. like the marsh with the will-o'-wisps, the strange odd lights dancing on top of the waters and luring people away and people mm. going kind of crazy on there. Because we know the fool was astounded that Fitz told her, well, I told Beloved, I guess that he walked, he and Night Eyes walked along the Cursed Shores for a while and came mm -hmm. back because no one does that. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I just kind of read it as a typical like folktale kind of thing. But it makes more sense to have an in-story explanation, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it could also just be a, it's a pirate town, so it's secretive and spooky. <laughs> right. <laughs> which is well, also fine. Well, this isn't just a town, it's the whole shore too. Yeah, yeah. Which is incredible to think about how you would even have charts for this yeah if it keeps changing with the different channels but i suppose the whole like delta here along the whole coast <laughs> right but i suppose there can only be so many variations right so even if it changes every season and they're moving how much could it possibly move yeah you, like it's all going to be somewhat in the same area. No, I mean, obviously it could be miles of difference, but I don't think you're going to have like, there's three rivers here and then tomorrow or a month from now, there's no rivers for the next 50 miles. Like, right. Yeah. I don't know. It just, maybe, I don't know. It's a magic world for all I know it does. <laughs> <laughs> it's the labyrinth of, a, <laughs> of a magical Island, but I don't know. Just a thought I had going on. But it also goes to show that it is difficult for the other, the other kingdoms and civilizations and societies to traverse the Pirate Isles and oust them from this area. Right. It's and difficult to travel, difficult for boats to maintain themselves, especially right. if you don't know where you're going. Yeah, and on top of that, Brashen starts talking about how when he was taking captive and was forced to be a pirate for a little while, which would have only been 
10 to 15 years ago, um, the places on this island were few and far between and they were pretty sparse. It was a bunch of people that were just desperate to escape yeah, he, their he, situation. He says them as uh, the villages were tiny clusters of decaying huts. The only residents had been desperate men who had nowhere else to go. They had not been swaggering pirates, but little more than castaways who lived off whatever trade the true pirates brought to their tiny settlements. So that makes me think that that's another reason why people don't really know the cursed shores and they don't, there's not a ton of maps because even though there has always been pirates and a pirate problem, it's just the recent influx of growth that made them a real problem. And because nobody's really looked into it for now, of course, or be for now, there's, there's no maps. There's just a lot right. of folklore and mystery around it. So yeah. this rapid growth is really, I think what makes the difference. Yeah, and Brashen says that he can only marvel at how a few clusters of outlaw settlements had apparently grown into a network of towns. When he had been mate on the Vivacia, Brashen had listened skeptically to tales of permanent pirate settlements built on pilings or far up the brackish rivers and lagoons. Since he had begun sailing on the spring eve, he had gradually formed a different picture of these shifting islands and the bustling settlements that clung to their unreliable shores. Some were still little more than places where two shops might stop to trade goods, but others boasted houses with paint on their boards and little shops along their muddy streets. The slave trade had swelled the population and widened its variety. Artisans and educated slaves who had escaped Jamalian owners rubbed elbows with criminals who had fled the satraps' justice. Some residents had families. Women and children now formed a minor part of the population. Many of the escaped slaves were obviously trying to re-establish their lives stolen from them. They added a note of desperate civilization to the renegade towns. And so Brashen can see here the beginning of civilization, how things are starting to be become a little bit more civilized and a little bit more like actual towns with these educated slaves trying to build up their lives once again. It's not just renegades and castaways and people who couldn't actually cut it as pirates. Right. Yeah. Th times are changing. And I think this really also goes to show just how much Kenneth's luck is helping him. Right. Like right. if he had tried this before now, it wouldn't have worked because there wouldn't be enough people. And also if he wouldn't have started freeing more slaves, there would still not be enough growth to help create a town or a society big enough to be yeah. worth ruling over and the people involved in it families are right. going to want a leader or something more legitimate yeah. than just pirates and renegades they escaped that so if there's more of an influx and a defining quality of we're trying to reestablish normalcy yeah they might be a little bit more for a king Right. So timing is great for Kenneth. His luck works again. <laughs> so Brashen talks a little bit about navigating these isles, and he says that he suspects there are private charts, but Captain Finney seems to be operating just from memory because he never shows it to anybody, right. which goes to show how far he trusts anybody. <laughs> right. But Brashen is making his own little charts that he 
is drawing down and scribbling on. Yeah, he specifically says that kind of untrustworthiness begets me retaliating with treachery. The treachery is me stealing scraps of paper and making my own map, which he would definitely, the captain would definitely see as treachery. But it's just such a funny, like, he's like a swarthy pirate who is also somebody who can be treacherous. But the treachery is just drawing a map, (laughs) drawing. He's just doodling in his free time. So it's a really funny juxtaposition. I don't know. This seeing Brashen after such a long time has been very nice. I I enjoy his point of view. (laughs) Brashen does point out that a good part of Finney's value as captain depended on his arcane knowledge of the Pirate Isles. He would see Brashen's careful hoard as a theft of his hard-won knowledge. Brashen saw it as the only long-term benefit he might carry away from this voyage. Money and Sindon were all very well, but they were too soon gone. If fortune forced him into this trade, he would not sail as a mate forever. Which is a little bit of a change from his mindset before. He didn't really know where he was going or what his future held. He was just fine with getting Sindon. Right. And spending his money. And now, yes, he still has a lot of Sindon and is still using (laughs) a lot of Sindon, but... He is looking forward to a future where he's not on board anymore. Right. So there is uh, an illustrated scroll that Finney holds up. He, and Finney jumps or uh, nudges Brashen out of his reverie here and says, what do you think this is worth? Brashen recognizes it as a pretty nice copy of the contradictions of Saw. But too familiar a knowledge of such things might indicate to Finney that he was not illiterate. He gave a shrug. Lots of pretty colors and fancy birds. So Brashen is in this conversation playing dumb, mm-hmm. dumb pirate. And Finney keeps asking him these questions like, hey, what do you think this is worth? Yeah. Where do you think this could buy? Like, it's a all really, these kind of things. Yeah, it's a really interesting tightrope walk between the two of them where Brashen needs to come off as capable enough to be able to keep the job and his safety but not so capable that he's a threat to Finney. And and also, I think this role, he's played multiple times, so he's good at it now. Yeah. And I think Finney uses it as a negotiating tactic. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, right in front of the merchant, what do you think this is worth? I don't know, probably not much, but maybe some in the right buyer's hands. And Falden has to, like, come to defense of the item and try right. to convince Finney more. But I will point out that he does specifically say he cannot have too much knowledge because then Finney would know he is right. literate, which indicates that he is also kind of trying to play a part for Finney. And I think yeah, definitely. that's interesting to me because why would it matter if he could read or not, especially because he comes from Bingtown and clearly from a pretty decently well-off place i guess it goes it gives me questions about what are the literacy rates in this world like are people normally not literate i guess in bucky probably not people they had like the public education system where everybody could come to the hearth but like yeah but that's in Buckkeep itself and not the town so if you're too poor to have your kids free (laughs) are they gonna learn how to read or are they just gonna run around like so you have to be kind of rich but that's Buckkeep, which is seen as barbarian-ish to this area so you would think that would mean that everybody then is educated to be literate but i wouldn't think so i don't know yeah yeah 
But uh, Finney is once again poking at that Bingtown connection. As we mentioned before in the previous chapter with him, he wants Brashen to act as a go-between or find a go-between in Bingtown to sell things there. So he asks Brashen, what do you think this is worth? Brashen shrugs, to whom? Finney narrowed his eyes. In a Bingtown shop, say. I've seen them there, never wanted to buy one myself. Sinkir Falden rolled his eyes at the sailor's ignorance, and then Finney moves on. But each time we can see a little poke at, like, maybe in Bingtown. <laughs> yeah, it also really gives that feel that Finney is maybe on to Brashen. I I don't think there's much to be on him about, though, you know? Because he, he gave relatively the truth. Yeah, but I think, I don't know, It especially this chapter makes me feel like Finney is not as trusting of Brashen. I think he's just as, a suspicious guy in general. Yeah, but I mean, like, Brashen thought that he understood the level of mistrust uh, from Finney, and I feel like this chapter shows that there's even less trust than previously thought. <laughs> right. And then on top of that, it feels like Finney, true to his character, is trying to catch Brashen out in a lie, and these right. are all little tests. And even if it is, I think you're right that the, it's mostly brought off the thing of him trying to push Brashen into being the go-between for Bingtown. I think that's what it starts as, but I think it morphs into him realizing that maybe Brashen isn't the person that he thought he was. Right. And really I mean, pushing the history. It really builds out into his character because we know what happens. They go, they do go back to Bingtown. Brashen says, yeah, I'll, I'll find you a guy to sell this or whatever. And Finney leaves that night without Brashen coming back to the ship. It's like the same day. He doesn't even yeah. wait. He's just like, eh, something smells off. <laughs> Brashen wasn't even going to turn him in, yeah. <laughs> but he was just going to abandon ship. Well, that doesn't happen this chapter, though. No, I know it yeah, doesn't, but, but that, that's it fits into his character, I'm saying, true. with yeah. the suspicion of him. So, Finney moves on, and he asks, what else do you have? And Brashen is looking away at this point, and Finney is annoyed at something that Falden has brought out. He says... It's broken. You know I only trade in the finest merchandise. Take it away. Only the frame is damaged, no doubt in the haste of er, salvaging it. The canvas is intact and quite valuable, I am told. It appears to be the work of a noted Bingtown artist. But that is not the only thing that makes it exceedingly valuable. His voice hinted at a great secret to share. Finney pretended disinterest. Oh, very well, I shall look at it. A ship. Now that's original. A ship under sail on a pretty day. Take it away, Sinkior Falden. The merchant continued to hold the painting proudly. I think you shall regret it if you, if you let this get by you, Captain Finney. It was painted by Papas. I am told he accepts few commissions, and that all of his canvases go dearly. However, as I told you, this is even more unique. It is a portrait of a live ship. It was taken from a live ship. Brashen felt an odd little sideways wrench in his gut. Althea had commissioned a portrait of Vivacia from Papas. He didn't want to look. He had to. Foolish not to. It could not be what he feared. No pirate vessel could ever overtake the Vivacia. It was. Brashen stared, sickened, at the familiar painting. So he now sees the painting that hung in Althea's stateroom on the Vivacia in the hands of a pirate broker, merchant, saying it was taken from that live ship. Right, and this really gets to Brashen. He's really freaking out because 
This is Althea's property, and he can't believe Althea would have left it on the ship, which means maybe she got back on the ship and then it was overtaken by pirates. And he's really spiraling of what if Althea's in danger? How how did they get this painting and what if she's in danger? And he's really trying not to believe the worst. He just can't wrap his head around how this could have happened, but he does also acknowledge that it's possible Althea left the painting on the boat, but that still means his old mate crewmates are in trouble. Right. He finishes his thinking saying that logic told him that it was taken off the vivacia. But he doesn't know how pirates could have caught up to the live ship because that just doesn't happen. Even before she had quickened, Efren Vestrit had been able to show her heels to anything that even considered pursuing her. Quickened and willing, nothing should have been able to catch her. So Brashen doesn't think it's possible. Although I think it's very important that quickened and willing is the main caveat and also he doesn't know that vivacia was being used as a slave ship right and how it got taken obviously this scenario was special circumstances yeah yeah it was really the perfect storm literally but um (laughs) that created that caused vivacia to be overtaken by kennett so he's staring at this painting and All of a sudden, you know the ship, Brash? Finney asked in a soft, friendly voice. The captain had caught him staring at the painting. He tried to make his look of dismay seem one of puzzlement. He knit his brows deeper. Papas. I was looking at that name, thinking I knew it. Papas. Papas? Nah, Pape. That was the fellow's name. Terrible cheat at cards, but a good hand aloft. He gave Finney a shrug and a half-hearted grin. He wondered if he had fooled him. It's a live ship out of Bingtown. Surely you knew her. Live ships are not that common, Finney pressed. Rashin took a step closer, peered at the painting, then shrugged. They're not that common, true, but they tie up at a different dock from the common ships. They keep to themselves, and idlers aren't too welcome there. Traitors can be a snooty lot. I thought you were traitor-born. Now both of them were looking at him. He spat out a laugh. Even traitors have poor relatives. My third cousin is the real traitor. I'm just a shirt-tail relative, and not a welcome sight on my family's doorstep. Sorry, what's her nameplate say? Vivacia, Finney said. I thought that was a ship you'd served on. Didn't you say as much to the agent back in Candletown? Brashen cursed his sinned-and-fogged memories of that meeting. He shook his head thoughtfully. No, I told him I was made on the vicious vixen. She was out of a six duchies harbor, not Bingtown. Not a bad vessel if you like living with a bunch of barbarians who think fish head stew is a real treat. I didn't. Finney and Falden both chuckled dutifully and changed the topics. Yeah, so first of all, I want to ask, do you think Brashen is telling the truth when he says that live ships are tied off at a different dock? Yeah, I think so. Okay, so I think that answers the question that we've had running up into this point of, why wouldn't people of Bingtown know more about live ships and like be less surprised by them, I guess? Now now I'm questioning myself and my answer of yes there. Because I feel like 
Well, we don't get descriptions of the other ships when Althea goes to the dock or when Amber goes to the dock or anything like that. It's just like, oh, and then they were next to Vivacia, mm-hmm. and that's about it. So I'm not sure. Also, I don't imagine there being a ton of docks. So I, I would guess that the original Bingtown docks were like, this is old trader stuff. And then the three ships, tra- people that moved in are like, you can have your own dock somewhere else. Yeah, I guess that could be true. And it is the old traders we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. They have their own rain wild street to sell their wares on. I don't know. Well, any, I, anybody can go down there. Yeah, but I mean, they have their own little separate, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're all about separation. So I wouldn't be surprised if it was true, but I think if it is true, it does answer that question of how there's so much mystery, even if you're from the place, because right. if you're not in the family and allowed to be on that dock, you're probably not going to be able to converse with a live ship or understand what they're like. But Althea also is able to easily sneak onto that dock. So that makes me wonder if it really is something that's, I don't think it's like closely guarded and off limits. I think it's probably a separate section of the same dock. I would guess just like live ships are over here. You guys have to walk a little bit further, you know, Mm -hmm. that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. That's what I'm guessing at least just not, completely segregated but yeah (laughs) there's not a gate to get (laughs) yeah exactly well either way so that answers that question i think but then also i wanted to talk about how brashen brings up that he was on a six duchies boat and Mm -hmm. how they're barbarians yes and it just i think fish heads too yeah it made me laugh because it makes me think of how fitz talked about the mountain people Right? Yeah, yeah. They're just barbarians. They don't know any better. They're whatever. They don't really have cities, you know. Yeah, they're not they're not as civilized as us. And I just <laughs> it makes me giggle that every single like next step up is like, oh, the one the place you just read about, awful. <laughs> so yeah, I thought that was fun. Also, do we know has the vicious vixen, is that a real boat and has it been mentioned before? I didn't think so but it sounds familiar in a weird way i was wondering if it was the one named after ketrikin do you remember how like she got her own ship named after her after she fought while pregnant oh maybe but maybe i'm wrong about that i think that brashen just made up a name that was a v name vi Mm -hmm. name just to you know, sell the story. Right. It wasn't Vivacia. I think it sounds familiar to me because Regal calls Ketrikin a vixen. Yeah, maybe that's why I was thinking it was a ship and, named after Ketrikin. And vixen is also one of the dogs. Yeah. So. The dog, the mother. The dog, yes. Brashen's bonded partner. Well, that's a fun little callback then. Mm-hmm. The good pup vixen gets a name <laughs> name callback <laughs> so finney tells falden to put the painting away he's not going to buy it it's just not enough really falden of course is trying to emphasize the value he's making a big show of wrapping it back up brashen tried to resume his watchful air but he felt sick the splintered frame indicated the painting had been taken hastily had she been sinking as the framed painting was torn off the wall 
One of Falden's boys passing near him shot him a fearful glance. Brashen realized he was glaring at no one and then rearranged his face. And he thinks about his old comrades, of how they were on board, vivacious still, and his faces, their faces float to memory. He talks about Grig, Comfrey, and Mild, the ship's boy. He also says that he hopes they had the good sense to turn pirate when offered the option, because he can't even He doesn't fathom. know that they were a slaver. Yeah. yeah, he can't fathom that they wouldn't have made it. His need to ask the merchant what he knew of the live ship burned inside him. Was there a way to be curious without betraying himself? Brashen suddenly didn't care. Where did you get the picture of the live ship anyway, he asked. The other two men turned to stare at him. Why do you care? Captain Finney asked. His voice was not casual. Sincure falled and broke in, obviously still hoping to dispose of the painting. The painting comes from the ship herself. Rarely is a live ship ever captured. This authentic memento of such an event is among the rarest of the rare. Brashen shifted the small plug of Sindon in his lip. Don't believe it then, he said gruffly. He met Finney's eyes. That's what was bothering me. If a man has a picture of a ship aboard, it is likely a picture of his own ship. But live ships don't get caught. Everyone knows that. It's a fake. He shifted his gaze, as if by chance to the merchant. Oh, uh, I'm not calling you a liar, he added hastily at the look of outrage on Falden's face. I'm just saying whoever sold it to you was probably gulling you. He smiled at the man, knowing well that insinuating that a man didn't know what he was talking about was the best way to get him to share all he knew. It worked. The trader's outrage faded to a look that was coldly smug. I don't think so. Yet I can understand why you might believe that was so. The taking of a live ship is not an ordinary feat. An ordinary man did not accomplish it. Captain Kennett did. If you know his name at all, you will not be surprised by it. Captain Finney gave a snort of contempt. That horse's ass? Is he still alive? I would have bet gold that someone would have spilled his guts by now. He isn't still spouting that nonsense about becoming the king of the pirates, is he? For the first time, Brashen suspected Sincure Falden's affront was genuine. You speak of a man who is all but engaged to my daughter. I have the highest regard for Captain Kennet, and am honored that he gives me the exclusive privilege of selling his goods. I will hear no disparagement of him. Finney rolled his eyes at Brashen. Then you won't hear me say anything, hear anything from me about him. The man is insane, Sincure. He is a top-notch captain, and he runs a tight ship. I won't fault him there. Last year, there was all that wild talk about him saying he was destined to be king of the Pirate Isles. Rumor was that he'd gone to the other island, and got an oracle to say it was so. Well, you know how much we all want a king. Faw. So he talks about that a bit, and talks about the normal stuff that we heard in the first book, about the opposition to Kenneth, of like, eh, these people don't want a king. He seems yeah. a little crazy. I find it really interesting because I think this is the first time we've heard third party talk about Captain Kennet in depth without Kennet being yeah, in the room. True. And so this is kind of a really good look into his reputation, I guess. And it's still on the edge. It's not yeah. really there. Yes, he has support from the formerly freed slaves, but mm -hmm. Falden is the one you know, boosting him up here, and he has very close ties to Kenneth. Yeah, he's the one trading in the goods, so of course he cared. And I mean, I think Falden later, as we'll get into, talks more about why he likes the idea of there being a ruler. And I think he talks about it, oh, maybe it was later, but I thought it was before. 
where he talked to, I thought it was Kenneth about like being able to make more money because he'd be legitimized. Yeah, that that happened. But in this chapter, he also goes oh, on okay. to talk about it in more detail. That part, yeah. Um, but I think that's really important because we're seeing people who wouldn't have been in the towns as much. So people like Captain Finney, how they still view Kennet is probably what used to be the larger population's opinion. Good captain, little bit too big for his britches. Yeah. He's a little crazy, which is really interesting because I think Kennet sees himself as someone who is very intimidating and, has his own sort of notoriety, I guess. And so it's interesting to hear that he is a famous pirate. I think that's safe to say, but he isn't necessarily an intimidating famous pirate. Like they're not not, amongst other pirates. No. Yeah. It's because he thinks that his image is very, that's why he's very concerned about it. Yeah. So I, I, I just found that really interesting that he's all like, I need to be the most intimidating guy in the room. And I need to, I'm so good at manipulating people into thinking I'm intimidating and strong. And people don't necessarily think that they just, right. They just think he's, I mean, they think he's a good captain. That's he's, and he is, I think we've definitely seen. Yeah. He's a great captain. That he is good at what he does. It just is one of those things that's kind of funny to know that he isn't as intimidating as he thinks. And people don't think of him as intimidating Mm -hmm. as he thinks, but he does still have a reputation that precedes him. Yes. And Finney goes on to talk about all that kind of stuff. And then also talks about the satrap and the Chalcedian, uh, Patrols. Yes. (laughs) So he says that the the kid, meaning Satrap Cosgo, doesn't even have the sense to keep it a Jamalian problem. No, he invites in Chalcedian privateers supposed to clean us out here, out of here. But all they're really here, really doing, is picking off the best cargoes for themselves and leaving us to take the blame. So he's kind of blaming Kennet for that as well, driving up the, you know, freeing the slaves, right, and then having the satrap kind of crack down on the rest of the pirates and leaving even less cargo because the Chalcedians are just stealing some anyways. Yeah. And interestingly, he does, Finney does make mention that like he feels bad for slaves too. Obviously it's really sad, but he doesn't want trouble. And that's what Kenneth is bringing by freeing the slaves. King of the pirate isles. Sure. That's just about exactly what we'd expect we'd get from a king. More dung raining down on us. Sincure Falden crossed his arms stubbornly. No, no, my dear friend. Far be it from me to disagree with a customer, but you are not seeing the larger picture. Kenneth has done great good for for us all. The slaves he has freed have joined us, supplying our towns with artisans and craftsmen, not to mention fertile women, who used to flee to us, murderers and rapists, thieves and cutthroats. Those few honest men who ended up among us have had to do as you and I have done— devise a way to make an honest living in the midst of disorder. Kennet has changed all that. He swells our town with folks who ask no more than a chance to live free again. He will make us of us a nation rather than a collection of bickering outposts for renegades and refugees. Yes, he stirred the satrap's wrath. Those among us who so blind as to think we still owed loyalty to a drug-lulled boy who is ruled by his women and advisers now see him for what he truly is. His actions have shattered that sentimental fealty. 
all of us are coming to realize that we owe no loyalty at all to Jamalia, that our concerns should be only for ourselves. And a grudging agreement spread over Finney's face. I don't say he's all bad, but we don't need a king. We've done fine running things ourselves. Why would the people of this area feel any sort of loyalty towards Jamalia? I don't know. And I think that's why Falden makes the point of saying that those among us so blind as to think we still owed loyalty. So it's just like Mm -hmm. any last remaining shred of attachment to Jamalia has been severed by these actions. Interesting. Also, quick question. What do you think Falden did to have to flee here? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Because... Also, he's talking about like upstanding citizens and honest people like you and I, Finney. And yeah. Alden. Yeah. Uh, he was probably probably some like tax evasion or something. That's what I was going to say. I'm like, it has to be like tax evasion or like a yeah. petty crime. Like, I don't know. I, ju- I, I think, just was thinking about it because I'm like. I think Kenneth mentioned that his wife was from Divi Town, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. It just was an interesting thing of like. You have these people who there's a group of them that feel superior to others. So why would that be? And I'm like, well, right. they must be the white collar criminals. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All these blue collar criminals come into town and make us look these bad. nasty people. <laughs> Brashen dredged up a fragment of half forgotten gossip. Kenneth, isn't he the one who kills everyone aboard a ship when he takes it? Not always, Falden objected. Only on slave ships does he kill the whole crew. But there is a rumor he has spared some of the live ship's crew, although she was a slaver. The ship was joyous at being rescued. Now she dotes on Captain Kennet. A live ship was being used as a slaver, and when she was captured, she abandoned her loyalty to her family. Brashen shook his head, amused and disdainful. He spoke to his captain. I may not know this particular ship, but I know enough of live ships to tell you those two things cannot be true. And Falden says, but they are, if you don't believe me, Divi Town's just a day or so away. Go there because the live ship is there right now. Mm -hmm. You can go talk to the live ship itself. Yeah. (laughs) And I have more goods there. (laughs) Yeah. So definitely come shopping. I think this is, again, goes to show how little Kyle knew going into this because even Brashen knew that you shouldn't make a live ship. I mean, he was raised as the heir until he was like 14. Mm. Yeah, but like, is a 14 year old given all the secrets of a live ship or does he just know that because he worked on a live ship? You know what I mean? Not probably not the secrets, but yeah, he he worked on it. He was probably on his family live ship before and talked about. Do they have a live ship? Actually, I don't, don't think know they, they have a live... It doesn't ever talk about what's-his-name, the other trail boy. That's true, Serwin, yeah. I guess they don't have a live ship. But he's probably probably from his time on Vivacia, I guess, then. Yeah, so that means... That would that, be where... But that's where I, why I'm saying, like, it's odd to me, then, that Kyle would know nothing. I know that, like, he only had two years before Efren died on the ship, but, like, he had two years on the ship, and he didn't learn anything yeah, about it. I guess it we wasn't know Kyle yet. doesn't want True. to learn, right? All the other people are dumb. He's the only smart person. True. So only he can save everyone. Yeah. So that stood out to me a lot. And then also, I want to talk about how 
the stories of Vivacia from Alden are about how she dotes on Kennet and anyone who talks to her in the harbor, she only speaks well of Kennet. Yeah. yeah. I think that's also super interesting. Yeah. Because it really goes to show how much Kennet does have an influence over her, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's, and, I mean, she's linked to him now, right? They yeah. have a bond. Yeah. It just is such a weird thing for me. And it, it feels really odd. Again, it it's just a perfect storm of situations happening to where Kenneth is able to do all these things and take over the bond and actually own a live ship. I don't know. I just. Yeah. I, I found that really, really interesting to hear that the rumors are even even if people who don't know much about live ships are like, oh my gosh, this live ship is in love with Kenneth, so how bad could he be? Right. It's crazy. I don't know. So Brashen says, you know, those decisions are up to the captain. Finney has to, you know, decide if we go to Bank- to Divi Town or not. And Falden, you know, presses the issue a bit, saying, yeah, I have all my wares. My warehouses are full there. Everything's good, you know. You should come. And Finney... Finney makes a nondescript noise and Brashen kept very still. The glint of interest had kindled in his captain's eyes. There was the prospect of seeing a captured live ship, perhaps even speaking to her. Given that sort of proof and Falden's assurance that the painting was the only trophy of its taking, he'd probably buy the portrait. Rarity always brought coin. So Finney says, set it aside and I'll talk to the live ship. If it sounds, everything sounds good, I'll probably buy the picture. Now let's get back to business. And we move points of view. So they make the decision to go to Divi Town, and Brashen directed the conversation to his liking to get confirmation of what had happened, and now he can see proof. Right. Yeah, and I think this is the start of the downfall of what little trust he had built up with Finney, Captain Finney. A little bit. I mean, he makes... At the end of the chapter, he makes his one more play and everything goes well. Yeah. And Finney still trusts him to go to Bingtown, so... <laughs> yeah, no, I, d- I definitely just think that this is enough of a weird occurrence that it yeah. stuck out in Finney's mind. Definitely. Then we switch over to Win- Wintrow's point of view. Uh, Wintrow is on the Vivacia in Divi Town, and there are lots of changes being made to the ship. She is being rightened. Uh, she, all of the crowd, the crowds of slaves have left the ship and have been replaced with crowds of carpenters and she is looking better than ever. She's been being restored, woodwork fixed up, stains are always going to be there, the blood stains and the ship won't forget those, but the evidence of the slaves is going to be gone, including the stench. Yeah. He talks about how Sorkor is kind of everywhere on the ship, just making his presence known, going around and making sure everything is going smoothly. And then a little less evident, but still there is Etta. And she is just as commanding. She is also going around the ship and Wintrow is kind of expecting her to 
be mean and catty to everyone. And that's just her leadership style because that's how she is to him and is very surprised to find out that she's actually pretty soft spoken and really good at praising people for doing things correctly. Yeah. He says that deckhands beamed at a word of praise from her. And also instead of, instead of that tone he expected, he discovered that she had a great talent for both charm and persuasion. He also detected the careful line she walked to get tasks accomplished to her satisfaction without interfering with Sorkor's authority. When the mate and the captain's woman were in proximity, they displayed both camaraderie and rivalry. It intrigued and puzzled Wintrow. Both their bond and their dispute was Kennet. How could one man command such loyalty from such diverse people? At the monastery, one oft-repeated old saying was, Saw's hand can fit around any tool. It was usually uttered when an unlikely novice suddenly bloomed with talent. After all, Saw had a purpose for all things. It was the limit of humanity that those reasons could not always be perceived. Maybe Kennet truly was a tool of Saw, and was aware of his destiny. Wintrow supposed that stranger things had happened. He simply could not recall any. <laughs> this really made me laugh, because <laughs> Wintrow's like... Maybe Kenneth's Jesus. Like, well, <laughs> I don't think I don't think I would go that far, but yeah, it's a funny thought. <laughs> I think it's more so. I maybe Kenneth knows what he has to do, and was given that knowledge by Saw. <laughs> maybe Saw talked directly to Kenneth. <laughs> yes, and knows exactly his purpose on Earth or on the realm. I, I need somebody to make a T-shirt with. Kennet on the cross. <laughs> Maybe don't put that in the episode. Maybe that'll be our meme. It'll just be Kennet on the cross. He, he commanded vivation for our sins. Oh no. Oh no, no. So Wintrow is <laughs> contemplating that. He's observing that on board the Vivacia and seeing the different kind of leadership styles and them meshing quite well with Etta filling in filling in Sorcor's shadow, but also being commanding, not overstepping herself and being very aware socially of where she is. He raps on the door to his father's room and his room, since he technically shares the room with his father, although he mostly sleeps on uh, next to Vivacia. Right. He says to his father, you should open the window. And Kyle, of course, is Kyle, but even more so because he is paranoid of everything now. Yeah, Kyle has kind of gone a little crazy. A little bit. But Wintrow, I think, overstates it. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It, it's hard, too, because obviously bad things have happened to Kyle. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm sure, not like downplaying that. Whatever. And very traumatic. Yeah. Obviously, this is not an easy situation to grasp. But he also isn't sane when it comes to Wintro talking to him like Wintro right. is the worst possible person to have to be his caretaker because he has just got it in his mind that Wintro is the enemy and right. there's like nothing Wintro can do to change that and Kyle needs somebody to blame and it has to be somebody who he can control and he feels like he still has control over Wintro yeah 
Winter hands over his food and Kyle scarfs it down and says, What? What sort of manners do you expect a man kept like a dog in a kennel? A kennel? There are no longer any guards on the door. I asked some days ago if you might be allowed out on deck. Kenneth said you could so long as I was with you and took responsibility for you. It is your own decision to remain in this room as if it were a cell. I wish there were a mirror in here so I could see if I look as stupid as you think I am, his father retorted sourly. He snatched up a wheat cake and wiped out the bowl with it before he bit into it. You'd like that, wouldn't you? He muttered around a mouthful of food. You could trot along beside me on deck and be oh so surprised and horrified when some sneaking bastard put a knife in my ribs. Then you would be rid of me for good and all. Don't think that I don't know that's what, what you want. That's what this has all been about. Not that you have the guts to do it yourself. Oh no, not the boy in the skirts. He prays to Sa, rolls his big brown eyes, and sets it up for others to do his dirty work. What's this? All the tea. And if I wanted so badly to be rid of you, I'd have poisoned it. Wintro heard the shock, with a shock, the heartless sarcasm in his own voice. His father halted with a mug halfway to his lips. He gave a hoarse bark of laughter. No, you wouldn't. Not you. You'd get someone else to poison it, and then you would give it to me, so you could pretend none of it was your doing. Not my fault, you could whine, and when you crawled back to your mother, she would believe you and let you go back to your monastery. Wintro pinched his lips together. I am living with a madman, he reminded himself. Conversing with him is not going to bring him to his senses. His mind has turned. Only Almighty Sa can cure him, and only in his own time. He found a modicum of patience within himself. He tried to believe it was not a show of defiance when he crossed the small room and opened the window. So I do really want to point out that Kyle in this scene really makes me feel like he is embodying all of the worst of the traits that he was trying to push onto Wintro. Oh, yeah. The, like, cowardliness. Yeah, just the cowardliness and the... Not not being able to make any decisions, not doing anything, not trying to get himself free, I think, or even trying to live under the new rules. I think that is just exactly what Kyle is now doing. And to be honest, the place that Kyle is in is still way better than what he put Wintrow through. Even with all of the stuff, I would argue, even with all the stuff that has happened, like obviously him being, getting to this point was pretty traumatic, but the way he has been treated and the things done to him are still not nearly as bad as the stuff that he allowed to happen to his own son. And Wintrow was able to keep his head up and did what he needed to do and didn't, I mean, he still moped. I'm not trying to make it seem like Wintrow was perfect. And you he know, did have Vivacia to speak to and true. kind of put him on the right course. But like. And I, emotional training. Yes. <laughs> and true, meditation training. True. But Kyle, the whole time, whenever he was in charge and Wintrow was going through this and being isolated and caged in a room, which was much smaller than the one that kyle himself is now in and you know just what kyle is going through is marginally better than what 
his son went through and the whole time he was like you are such a baby you can't even handle this much like be a man grow up don't cry don't complain take control of your life and then whenever it's him in that position it's not his fault it's somebody else's fault and he can't do anything because he's trapped and it's like the the thing that he hates Wintro for doing he also does like, right it's the haven trait uh, i guess of not admitting when you're at fault or not taking responsibility for your actions i would argue and so it's really interesting to see him embody all of the things that he is mad about wintro for having and that's the most haven thing about wintro all right so with that being said this is where it comes in where i mentioned i don't think he's entirely crazy yes uber paranoid yes kind of going a little insane but he's not wrong about wintro in this instance wintro would never stoop down to kill his father no that's what kyle doesn't understand but if he was of the mind to kill his father he would not want to do it himself i i truly truly believe that's the kind of no, it's not not about murder. Wintrow's not a murderer or anything like that. But yeah. just any kind of unsavory act, he does want to distance himself from that. He does want to create that separation like, it's not my fault. I didn't mean to do this. I am clean in this. Like the whole freeing the slaves thing. Right. Yes, that was a moral quandary. Yes, he, I think, did the correct thing, but it resulted in a lot of bad stuff, right? right. But he's... Kyle's not exactly wrong about how Wintrow thinks here. He's he gets a lot of the details incorrect, but the general idea of Wintrow wanting to separate himself from some things is correct. Now, the reason for it also might be wrong because Kyle thinks he's just cowardly, right? right? Doesn't want to get his hands dirty or whatever. Wintrow is just morally objecting to all of that kind of stuff. But if something did happen where he was a cause of it that was morally objectable, Wintrow's like, it's not my fault. I didn't do it. <laughs> okay, so I somewhat disagree with this. I, I do agree that this is kind of a trait of Wintrow's. I will argue he is only 14, so oh, of yeah. course he can't yeah, yeah. take he can't really own up properly. Um, and I do think he eventually in some cases is able to admit to himself that th- these are just excuses that he's making. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, it obviously There's has growth. Helped. Yeah. It obviously hasn't helped him in not continuing to do that yet, but, <laughs> but I do think that there is growth there. I think if Windrow was the kind of person who didn't care as much about murder, like if he could get to the point where he's like, yeah, my father should probably die. I think that would be the point where he, doesn't care about getting his hands dirty anymore like i don't see a world in right, which that's why i kind of excluded the murder thing i guess in the second half of my argument because i realized that as i was talking yeah. through so but so just yeah. like morally gray dirty stuff he wants to distance I, himself from yeah but i would say that like he would not willingly give his father poison like if somebody was like i'm poisoning your dad you give it to him he wouldn't do that e- like even if kyle thinks he would I know, but I could see a situation where somebody hints at it like, oh, your father, you know, like he's often thirsty, right? Like, mm, it's a shame that he's still taking up all of our supplies here. Bring him this tea or something, which would be like, I don't know if it's poisoned or not. 
Maybe he's thirsty. <laughs> okay, sure. I don't know. I just... I I think it is him making the worst of Wintrow's traits. Oh, definitely. 100%. Which, yeah, I don't think you're arguing against, but... Yeah, I don't know that I agree that he's right, necessarily. I don't think he's 100% right either, but I think he, like strikes a nerve with Wintrow. Oh, yeah, definitely. I guess in that case, yeah, you're correct. It is the thing that Wintrow is mo- most self-conscious about. <laughs> He's he is like a middle school a middle schooler, Kyle, because he <laughs> really knows how to find your weakest link and then hit you on that and like really insult that to really hit the mark. <laughs> so Kyle eventually brings the conversation around to Kennet, asking, is he going to ransom us? And he's a little bit desperate in this rant as well, saying he could get a good price for us. Your mother could probably could scrape up a bit, and the Bingtown traders would come through with more to get a live ship back. Does he know that? That he could get a good price for us? You should tell him that. Has he sent a ransom note yet? Because obviously he does want to get home. And Wintrow sighs, not this conversation again. He cuts swiftly to the meat of it, hoping for a mercifully quick end. He doesn't want to ransom the ship, Father. He intends to keep it. That means I have to stay with it. I don't know what he plans to do with you. I've asked him, but he doesn't answer. I don't want to make him angry. Why? You've never feared to make me angry? Wintrow sighed. Because he is an unpredictable man. If I push him, he may take rash action to demonstrate his power. I think it was wiser to wait for him and see if he has nothing to see that he has nothing to gain from holding you. As he heals, he seems more reasonable. In time, in time, I shall be little more than a living corpse, shut up in here, taunted and mocked and despised by all on this ship. He seeks to break me with darkness and poor food and no company save that of my idiot son. Wintrow picks up the tray of food and turns to go. And Kyle says... Yeah, run away. Hide from the truth. And then has the audacity to say, make sure you empty the chamber pot. It stinks. And Wintrow's like, do it yourself. yourself." (laughs) Literally. Thank you finally, Wintrow, for talking back to your father. But this, I think that rant about in time, I'll be little more than a living corpse. Again, is showing like he is, this is what Wintrow went through and Wintrow I mean Wintrow's not fine but like Wintrow survived it and didn't complain nearly as much and Kyle does become way worse at the end of the trilogy though yeah no for sure but (laughs) they like forget to feed him on Key Island and he's like can barely walk and he's emaciated and Althea doesn't recognize him when they bring him out fair enough fair enough it gets worse for like him. Locked in a basement for. <laughs> yeah, it gets worse for him. You're right. Okay, I'm not. I think at this point in time, things are not worse than how he has treated his own son, and he is handling it way worse than Wintrow ever did. Right. And he thinks Wintrow is a like the poor excuse of a man. Yeah, and whatever. And it's like, okay, then what's that make you, bud? Oh, I hate him. And. <laughs> I get the same amount of vitriol for Kyle as I do for Malta sometimes uh, because they're related. So the, I don't know. Like I father, just, like daughter. Yes. R- truly a daddy's girl. Um, <laughs> but what I find really interesting is 
his inability to understand why Wintrow didn't care to make him mad, but cares to ma- uh, cares about not making Kenneth mad. Right. Like, well, you are. He's a pirate who killed everybody. Yeah, he literally <laughs> murders people. You are awful, but you don't murder anybody. Like, I'll give you that, bud. You're not a murderer. So the worst case scenario of making you well, mad is he, him missing a meal and getting hit. Right. He is a murderer, but not to Kyle because Kyle considers slaves cargo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Kyle isn't going out and killing Physically, people with yes. his own hands. Or he's a respectable merchant. Yes, he's not. He's not ordering people to be murdered. He just sometimes deals in people as his cargo and lets them die from sickness. That's completely <laughs> different. <laughs> Horrible. But uh, but I'm saying. In this case, worst case scenario for Wintrow, he makes his dad mad, he gets hit. Worst case scenario for Wintrow making Kenneth mad, he gets murdered. There's a big difference. And the fact that Kyle thinks that he's even somewhat comparable to Kenneth is very laughable. Yeah. In any sense of the word. I mean, even if you take away the murder part, like, Kenneth's way better captain. But Papa is a dashing captain who will save us all. (laughs) He knows better than all of you conniving ladies. (laughs) Power hungry women. Either way, I just I found it really interesting that he that's why I'm like, he's got to be crazy. Are you serious right now? You don't understand why your son is afraid of a pirate? Like, how manly is it to not understand (laughs) consequences to actions? I don't know. In Kyle's mind, though, Wintrow is cozying up to Kenneth, right? Like he's his new pal, his new best friend. So why not ask him to ransom us? (laughs) I guess. But it's like. It's so stupid, but that's what it is in Kyle's mind, right? That's what he says in the first. Right. But it's also like Wintro also listened to the Gantry. Yeah. Wintro and Gantry got along just fine. It's basically that. Yeah. Completely different. You're you're his dad, dude. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't know. It just Oh, Kyle. Well, I think we're going to cut it off there and pick up with the rest in the next episode. We'll, again, pick up with uh, Wintro, and he meets Sa'adar out in the hall. So we'll talk about more about that and then switch around to a couple point of views more. So thank you so much for tuning in and listening to us this week. If you have thoughts about, about if the Kershaw is or has an elderling city nearby, or if it's just kind of the cursed shores and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> or the people's thoughts about Kenneth and his reputation, please let us know. You can email us at isfitshappy at gmail.com, or you can message us directly at any of our social medias. We're at isfitshappy at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, excuse me, X, Instagram, oh. Threads, YouTube. You can find us on any of those. Or you can go to our website, isfitshappy.com. And we have the links all in there as well. Thanks so much. See you next week. So we're going to jump right into some stuff that you guys have brought to our attention. First, I'm going to start with an email brought to us by listener Melissa about Malta and Rain and Rain's going away party. Yes. I believe this is for episode 162. No, we're on a... We're, we're f- 160, 
Yeah, we're, six? Yeah, 166. We're recording 167 right now. <laughs> it was not 168. that far ago. Oh, 167. Yep. I don't know. I can't count. <laughs> um, anyway, so this is, I guess, 166 then. And Melissa is talking about how this is peak Malta content. Yes. And yeah. I agree. <laughs> and how Melissa believes that Malta got her ideas of love and romance from novel, like crappy romance novels. Definitely crappy romance novels. Yeah. yeah and maybe some like serialized version in this Passed time around period. between her and her friends, maybe stolen from Kefria. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and from eavesdropping on the adults talking about yeah. love and romance and um, just piecing those together. And it is very childlike in what they believe romance is and what love to be. And it, it does fit that feeling of a kid having their first romance mm -hmm. um which i i would agree there's where, also where everyone is kind of blinded she she yeah. says the love is blind applies to everyone here and they're all dumb young kids who are obsessed with the word love and everything is the worst thing to ever happen or the best thing to ever happen so there's just kind of over dramatizing everything and she talks about serwin a little bit as well and his part in it because we i think we were talking about that too of just yeah. like what's when, his deal <laughs> when did he become so obsessed with malta right and melissa says that but, uh, maybe the reason that he's so interested is because she's off limits or she already has somebody vying for her attention yeah. especially somebody as interesting as a rain wild trader yeah melissa says that the fact that Malta is a bit of a spectacle and she is young and already courting Rainwild makes her a bit of a hot commodity. Serwin strikes me as a competitive type and, like all the others, a bit of a hopeless romantic that gets caught up in the society drama. All these well-to-do kids read too much trashy fiction. It's hilarious. <laughs> and it's kind of true. I mean, Serwin, I, I do like that read of him as well because, yes, he's had probably more time with... Malta than Rain has had even, mm -hmm. but obviously he's second choice and that eats him up inside. Yeah. And I do, I do think looking at it through that lens of them all being kids. Well, especially with Malta egging everything on. Too. Yeah. She's definitely stirring <laughs> the pot. There's that whole sense of him wanting the forbidden thing earlier like he knows he's not supposed to be treating malta like an adult but she wants to be treated like an adult and so yeah. it's that forbiddenness that he likes and now he's not even first fiddle anymore he's second so i do kind of like that idea that it's this these kids who have spent way too much time reading romance novels and that makes me feel better i still don't think it, it explains why malta is so good at utilizing flirting methods but it does make more sense as to why they all are really in on this drama right. <laughs> melissa also says right at the end that this whole chapter just reminds her of those awful reality tv shows with shaky cam and it's just a bunch of caught in the moment <laughs> yes <laughs> where it like Scenes. swivels the camera over to catch somebody doing something like when Althea comes home dressed like a boy and has to pretend to be a ship's boy while waiting for her mom. Althea would keep up the act and flash the briefest glance at the camera while settling down with her plate of meat trimmings and bread. <laughs> I do love the idea of this being a reality TV show. <laughs> it was pretty funny. Thank you, Melissa. Yes, thank you, Melissa, for writing in and giving that opinion. I think it, it does bring a, a little bit more 
nuance to the thing. And it's not just Malta being devious. It's right. It's just that it's everyone is. Yeah. Everybody's just a kid. They're, yeah. they're all just kids who don't understand real life yet. And yeah, I don't know. Kids are a little dramatic. So thank you. We move over to Facebook for a quick comment on episode 165 by Degenhart. Emma made the posed the question, why do you think Captain Tanira readily believes Amber is in disguise and not actually a slave? Degenhart says, Tanira believes it because it fits the plot, with a wink there. <laughs> but in all honesty, Degenhart believes that the disguise is good but won't hold up to scrutiny and if you get close and actually look at the person, you'd be like, oh, that's actually just makeup. So that right there will just kind of cue Tanira into it. And also she completely acts differently, right? She speaks up for herself eloquently and can just talk through any the, the whole situation of why she's there. Right. And Althea's vouching for her too, so. Yeah. So thank you, Duggenhart, for that quick comment about 165 there. Which makes me think that Melissa's was about 165, no? No, it was about 166 still because Althea coming back home and talking with Malta about the whole situation, uh, 166. Gotcha. Nice. But we do have some comments about 166 as well. Also, also by Dagenhart. Yeah. So this episode, in this chapter, we talked a bit about... Althea's discussion with Amber and particularly about the uncomfortable sections at the end where Althea's like, uh, I don't want to talk about Brashen and I don't want to talk about the live ship trader stuff. And we had a discussion about how it's portrayed, how Althea is portraying herself. Right. And specifically, I talked about not loving the fact that Althea frames the conversation as Brashen taking advantage of her while she was under the influence of something and he like making it seem as though this was not not of her control at all right when really Amber is coming forward and being like well you're just regretting it and it's not actually that big of a deal and kind of talking about that and how that kind of I don't love that <laughs> I don't love it as a trope and I don't I don't think I I touched too in depth on it I, because it was something that I don't know. Sometimes in the moment we don't really script our podcast. And so sometimes in the moment you, we talk about things and I New don't have ideas come up. And, yeah, yeah. Or just like, I'll have a main point to bring up like that. But I then later after our podcast is done, I'm like, Oh, I could have said so much more about that. Um, but also we try not to make these four hour long podcasts. So <laughs> But Dagenhart did mention that nowadays it would be seen as more problematic to write a female character that says she was taken advantage of while being under the influence of several drugs. And then when someone else says, well, you did want it, though, didn't you? As if discounting the feeling. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. And Dagenhart mentions like. I say it's not forbidden to write about the circumstances. It's just a different kind of approach. And Althea having a guilty conscience about having enjoyed it would be more likely the modern spin. Right. It, they would talk more about her feelings and a lead up into that rather than Amber just kind of confronting her like, well, no, you but wanted, you wanted it. it. Yeah. Yeah. And I. <laughs> so 
It is like one of those weird things where these books are dated. Dagenhart also ends this comment by saying it's one of the first times in the book where it really feels like a woman maybe didn't write this scene. And I kind of agree with that take. I think I think it is definitely a product of the time. I think we looked up before doing this chapters episode um, when these books came out and this book came out in 1999, 19, 2000. Something like that. We looked it up. <laughs> literally looked it up, just looked didn't. it up. It's gone. It's <laughs> out of my brain now. But it, so it's, I don't think it was obviously like violence towards women. And 98. 98. So this book was written in 98. Obviously, this is something that has been around. These kind of tropes have been around for a long time. And I don't think a more nuanced conversation was being had about how women are treated and their sexual experiences are, should be talked about was really thought on hard in 98. Yeah. (laughs) This particular conversation in, in general is very borderline. Like it's not problematic because Althea does like Brashen, right? But if there was any wavering in the reader's, reader's mind about it, it's really blamey. Yeah. But because it's not, it's not on the yeah. line. It's, <laughs> it's just Althea lying to herself and the readers can see that. It just comes across as a little blunt. Yeah. And I think I think it's just it's a product of its time. And yeah. I think that's these book, this book trilogy in general is a lot harder to talk about than its counterparts and the rest of the series i think because there is some of the rest of the series yeah there are other sections in other books but you get a point of view in this one in this series <laughs> yeah i think i mean i think we've had somebody write in before though too and talk about how important it is to have these situations written about in the way that they are in this series and i do agree to some extent it's just one of those things where as a woman, whenever I read fantasy, I don't really want to be reminded of the worst parts of reality. Right. I would love to be able to like have fantasy worlds not have that happen. Even obviously authors draw from real world experiences and real world things. But I think that's one thing that could stay in the real world, <laughs> in my opinion. So it's something I'm definitely a little bit more sensitive to than other people, I'm sure. And that's totally fine. Um, but it is something that stuck out to me. So thank you, Dagenhart, for backing me up on that one. And also bringing forward the fact that it is a product of its time. Right. And it is something that is so borderline. And it would have been better to talk about the enjoyment, the guilt over enjoyment, rather than putting that blame on Brad. Right. Just <laughs> like exploring it. her feelings a little bit more yeah. of the matter would give some clarity and more depth to that conversation rather than just kind of a paragraph. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much for bringing that forward. One last thing. Yeah. We had a lighthearted comment on Instagram <laughs> from Amir who just to end the, end the episode on a little light note says that six chuggas are the actual, you know, that's the rule, you know, six chuggas before the choo choo <laughs> chugga, 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 choo choo. <laughs> Thank you, Amir. Okay. <laughs> the the discourse chugga chugga juju discourse is done. <laughs> the debate has ended. It's six. I might put a pull up still. Who knows? 
Thank you guys for writing in. It's always good to hear from you guys and to get other points of view and to bring more nuance to the conversation. It's always good to talk. It's sometimes scary doing this podcast because I do feel like there are some really delicate topics that have to be talked about when we're doing just this. two humans who yeah. don't have expertise in any of that. No, so. we're not like therapists or, yeah. you know, professionals in any sense of the word. But, you know, it's just one of those things where sometimes it gets scary to put feelings or even just opinions of the books themselves out there. And yeah. so it's always nice that our community that we've built up you guys are really receptive. And even when you guys don't agree with us, you guys are really nice about it. So, <laughs> yes, so we thank re- you. Yeah, we really appreciate that. And we really like hearing everyone's opinions and bringing all the opinions together. So thank you so much for writing in this week. And we look forward to what you have to say next time.